morning, everyone. My name is Tim. If we've never met before, it's my privilege to share with you out of God's Word this morning. So if you want to take your Bible or electronic device and get to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read just two verses there, then we're going to pray, and then I'm going to talk to you from this precious Word that we have. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for what this day means to us. And we thank you, Lord, that because of your word that you've given to us, we understand it more fully. I'm asking today for your Holy Spirit, Lord, just to open the eyes of our heart, that uh, all you are, all you've done for us, Lord, will become a little bit more real to us as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have heard of a guy named Rabbi Zacharias. Uh, Ravi is an apologist, that he's, he's a person who uh, defends the Christian faith. He has a team of people. They have been to more than 70 countries in the world, spoke to millions of people, and just shared with them why it makes sense to believe in Jesus Christ. One of the things they will do is talk about the resurrection and the compelling historical evidence that there is to believe that even though it's a miracle, that the resurrection is very probable and that it took place. Now, it's not unusual for Ravi, you know, to, after a presentation or whatever, someone will walk up and, um, you know, nice presentation, but I don't believe in God. To which Ravi will reply, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And then as they begin to have a conversation uh, so often, which in no way reflects the God of the Bible and how the Bible represents God, Ravi will say, oh, I don't believe in that God either. If we want to know someone, it's really insightful to know their story. And today, I don't know where you are in your belief about God, but we are celebrating it today, a pivotal point, really, in the history, the story of God with people. And it comes in two parts. There is Friday and there is Sunday. And to understand what happens today that we celebrate, you really need to know what happened on Friday. And so there's a whole history that goes from from the beginning to Friday, and then Sunday happens. And today we go, Jesus rose from the dead. Yay! What does that mean for us? What is the so what? What difference does it make for my world? What difference does it make for my life? What difference does it make to my belief in or about God? And the Bible would say it makes all the difference. It's everything. Everything pivots on what happens on this weekend. So let me take the time this morning to give us a little bit of backstory. I'm going to go right back to the beginning. If you have a Bible, or even if you don't, you've probably heard of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible, and at the very beginning, it tells us that God created this world that you and I are in. That God spoke, there was land, there was sea, there was uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, there's uh, animals, there's plant life, and God looked at it, and he called it good. Then God created us. He created humankind, Adam and Eve, 
and he called it very good. And to, to Adam and Eve was given the stewardship of his creation. So they're to look after it and they're to create culture. What God had given them, they were to take it further and do well with it. And God would bless them in that. And God gave them authority under his authority to, 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 to rule over all that he had made. He just gave them one boundary, one stipulation, that they were to, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis tells us. We get to chapter 3, though, there's a tempter who comes and he begins to put suspicion in the mind of Adam and Eve as to the goodness of God that surely with this one, one regulation, this one stipulation that God has told them, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Surely God's hiding something from them. He's keeping something from them. And he puts suspicion on the goodness of God and through temptation, the original couple, Adam and Eve, rebel. The Bible has a word for that. It calls it sin. And their sin, their act of disobedience against God, has massive consequences. Sin causes death, just like God said it would. In the day you eat thereof, you shall die. Adam and Eve eventually died physically. But sin also causes separation. So there's an immediate separation from God. They're kicked out of the place where they're in the presence with God. They're removed from that. And it also caused separation with one another. Now, now there's going to be a history of animosity between people. This is the consequence of sin. I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, if you're an artist or a painter or maybe you're a woodworker, but you, you start a creation you start a painting and you get going on it, or you start a drawing and, and you get going on it, or you're working with wood, you're, you, uh, you're a woodworker and you get going on it, and at some point, not too far into what you're doing, you go, you know what, um, I didn't mean for this to happen, but it's not really working out. We're headed down the wrong pathway here. And so you go, uh, just like, scrap it. Start over again. God had that choice. But he chose not to. And this is where the whole course of the story of God in the Bible is set. Because rather than scrapping and starting over, the story of God will be all about God's plan and his working to rescue humanity and to rescue this world. And so as you read the Old Testament, the Bible's um, divided into two parts. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. So as you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the part before we have Jesus coming to earth, and you read it, and there's all these people and all these stories. Although they're unique and they're different, they are all unified. The Bible really is one unified story from beginning right to the very end, from the old to the new. And, and the people and the stories in the Old Testament are all in some way pointing towards the one who's going to bring about the rescue of humanity in this world. Think about some of the themes. So right in Genesis, there's a, uh, a guy named Abel who was put to death because of his good deeds. There's a man named Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his son, but instead God provides a sacrificial lamb. There's a man named Joseph who is treated unjustly, but in his harsh treatment, he is raised, he's exalted to a place of great authority. There's a, a man named Moses whom, 
whom becomes the deliverer of God's people and acts as a go-between man and God to, uh, as God initiates a covenant with his people. There's a guy named Joshua who takes God's people into the promised land. There's a guy named David who becomes a king, a ruler. And, and in that process, he becomes one who, as a representative of his people, wins a great battle, a great victory over their enemy on behalf of all the people. And, and, and the people in the Old Testament and what they've written are foreshadowing the one who is to come. We see this in David's life as an example. In Psalm chapter 16, he, he writes, Bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now listen to this. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's, that's the grave in Old Testament language. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At, right, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now surely David experienced some of this, but it's pointing to someone beyond him. You see, David did see corruption. His body did go to the grave. And the New Testament writers pick up on this and they say, David wasn't just writing about himself. He was writing about the one he was pointing to. The one who died, but they never found his body. His tomb was empty, and his name was Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is the fulfillment. He is all their hopes and dreams of all the people in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Abel who's put to death because of his good deeds. Jesus is the true sacrificial son who fulfills the, the lamb that is sacrificed as a substitute. Jesus is the one who will suffer unjustly, but is the one who will be raised to the right hand of God. He's the greater Joseph. Jesus is the greater Moses. The one who will free his people and give to them a new covenant, a better covenant. Jesus is the deliverer. He's the one who will bring his people into the promised land. He's the greater Joshua because the promised land he brings them into is eternal. Jesus is the great king. The one whose body will not see corruption, but will be raised from the dead so that his tomb is empty. Everything points to Jesus. So as you read the Old Testament, you see these stories and you begin to see how it's all foreshadowing the one who is to come, Jesus Christ. And you see that they're also foreshadowing that the way, the path that Jesus is going to have to walk to fulfill their hopes and dreams is going to be a little bit different. But in, in the moment, the people that Jesus are with can't see it. Because for Jesus to do his rescue, it means he's, have to, he's going to have to go to the cross. He will die. Jesus said to his followers, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. And what Jesus was to do was to be for the whole world. But in order for what he wanted to do to happen, he had to, he had to embrace the cross. He had to die. And the significance of the cross is something that we need to understand. 
Because it's at the cross that Jesus deals with the original problem of sin, of rebellion against God, of going our own way instead of God's way, which has caused so much destruction, so much separation, so much death. It's there by dying that Jesus will deal with sin. So, this morning I want to, before we get to uh, the resurrection, I want to talk about the ramifications of Jesus dying on the cross because it magnifies the importance of the resurrection. You see, when, um, I've seen this in our own life, and some of you might as well, when our, when our kids grow up or when you're a kid, you have no idea what your parents have done for you to keep you alive. I look at a grandchild. I look at a grandchild, and they think all of life consists about them. Because they need to be fed. They need to be, uh, uh, you know, they need to sleep when they want to sleep. And if they don't get that, then, ah, that's how it works. And we grow up, and, and, and we have no idea what our parents have gone through to take care of us, to send us to school, to, to buy our clothes for us, to... Feed, uh, feed us. And so it's so cool when your kids, they leave the nest and they go out of the house and they start, they rent their first place. And then the conversation starts. The garbage doesn't take itself out on its own. It doesn't walk itself to the curb. It's amazing that you have to pay for electricity. Like if, if you don't pay for your lights, they don't, they'll cut them off. Cable's not free. And so you go through this thing and you realize, Oh, all of a sudden, mom and dad, you have a lot more gratitude because of what they've done for you as you become aware of it. This morning, I want to take just a little bit of time for us to become aware of what Jesus did for us when he embraced the cross and despised its shame. I'm going to use a couple of technical words, but I will explain them. First of all, Jesus became a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiate means to... um, or sorry, I'll start with expiate, sorry. The word expiate means to remove your sin. So we read in, in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, But as it is, he has a, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's the putting away. It's the removing of sin. And think about the ramifications of that. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. By going to the cross, Jesus Jesus expiated our sin. He removed it from us. So when we become Christians, God forgives us of our sin. So sometimes we've done things we're really, we're sad about, we're embarrassed about in our past, we're ashamed about. What you need to know when Jesus went to the cross, one of the things that's accomplished by him going to the cross is the removal of those things forever. You don't need to walk in guilt. It's been removed from you. This is part of what the cross does. It expiates your sin. It removes it from you so that when Jesus comes again, when you're brought into his presence, you're not worrying about that thing in the past. You can simply think about your relationship with him. Nextly, um, Jesus propitiates our sin. This is to remove, remove ourselves from the wrath of God. 
We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. He's distinct. There's no sin in him. He hates sin. We, re- we read that in the Old Testament, that he hates sin. And so God punishes sin. But God did not want to punish us. God wants to remove from that from us. But if, if sin is not punished, then he would be an unrighteous, unjust God. And so he makes, he makes propitiation. He makes satisfaction of that justice through his son, Jesus Christ. It removes the wrath of God from us so that when we face God, we not only have to not worry about our guilt, neither do we need to worry about facing some kind of punishment. At the cross, Jesus removes that from us. Jesus makes us... Uh, we read in, in uh, Romans chapter 3 where it just it recounts a whole bunch of things that, that um, is accomplished at the cross. It says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all hooped. If God doesn't do something, we are in effects. We all fall short of his glory. But, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't earn this. It's a gift from God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we'll look at that word, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, there it is, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God does deal with sin, but he does it at the cross in his son Jesus Christ, so that his wrath can be removed from us who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then he declares us um, justified. That's a legal term, like you're good with God. And he clothes us in his righteousness. So it's not just, it's not just like our sins are removed from us. We're also given a positive thing. We're given God's right. We're clothed with the righteous deeds of Jesus. It's like they are attributed not only to Jesus, but because we're united with him in faith, they're attributed to us. This is amazing. It happens because of the cross. At the cross, Jesus redeems us, it says. There's redemption. He sets us free. So the, the, the Bible talks about how the, the law is a curse. We're set free from our inability to keep God's ways. We're set free from sin, which, which just is, it weasels its way into our lives, and it's powerful, and we find ourselves doing things we, we don't want to do. Jesus sets us free from that, and he sets us free from the power of that sin. And, and then lastly, he delivers us. We read in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through the cross, Jesus delivers us from death. He delivers us from the power of, of, of the Satan and the, and the underworld. We are delivered from that so that we can live without fear. These are amazing things, but in order for it to happen, Jesus had to die. And he had to bear the sins of many. We need to understand that um, Philip Hughes, who writes a commentary on the Epistle of Hebrews, he said it's important to recognize that the shame of the cross where Christ bore the sins of the world is something infinitely more intense than the pain of the cross. So when we, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating as it was, like drops of blood, and he's crying out to his Father, God, if you will, please take this cup from me. 
It's not that Jesus was cower, cowering from the, the physical pain that he was headed to. No, Jesus knew there's so much more ramifications of what he's headed towards. He's going to bear sin. Others have suffered the pain of crucifixion, but he alone has endured the shame of human depravity in all its foulness and degradation. So Pastor Roy Ratcliffe uh, in the States got a phone call from one of the prisons where he lived, asking him to come to the prison because one of the prisoners wanted to be baptized. Little did he know on that day when he would arrive, that he would be asked to converse with and baptize a very notorious serial killer. The whole uh, encounter and an ongoing relationship as he began to meet with this person once a week, the whole encounter, just uh, it was, um, it was sh- shaking to the core of, of, of Pastor Roy as he began to consider the ramifications of, of the cross of Jesus Christ. Was it enough? Was it, what Jesus did enough for someone so evil in their activities who now wants to embrace Jesus? Was it enough to forgive that person? And as we think about that, know that that is just one person's sin that Jesus would bear on the cross. Think of the grotesqueness. Think of the ugliness that Jesus was clothed with like a snake on a stick another type of the Old Testament, as he bore the sins of the world, the whole world, past, present, future. When Jesus died, this is what he was working towards. And we know it worked because he rose from the dead. We said on Good Friday, if you were here, that Jesus is with us in our struggles so we can bring our struggles to him. We said that's true, that that Jesus not only empathizes with us, but he can do something about our situations because it says he's entered through the heavens. See, he died for our sin and he was clothed with our sin, but he was holy so that sin could not hold him. Death could not keep him because the strength of death is sin. And there was no sin in him so that he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death, which means that expiation, propiation, being justified, being made righteous, being redeemed is actually enforced because Jesus is alive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead and some people were doubting it. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, those that are dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he rose. The tomb is empty. The victory has been won. Now, all of I've talked about the ramifications of the cross, there's one more thing that I want to zero on in this morning, and that is all this made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. Remember in the beginning, sin caused separation, sin caused death. By Jesus going to the cross and by him rising from the dead victorious, he could then make it possible for whoever put their faith and trust in him to be completely reconciled to God, to have a right relationship with God. This is what it's all working towards. 
separation at the beginning of the story and you read through to the end and it finishes in the book of Revelation with God dwelling with his people. So Hebrews chapter 12, when we go back there and we read, looking to Jesus in verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That seat at the right hand of the throne of God is talking about he's resurrected, he's ascended to a place of authority and power beside his father. But it shows us why he did what he did. Why did he go to the cross? Because of the joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? A couple of weeks ago, uh, Lyndon Platt, one of our pastors here, talked about Alex Honnold. Uh, He is a uh, rock climber, and he did something very amazing recently. The El Capitan face in Yosemite National Park in California uh, had never been scaled like this. Um, Alex scaled it without rope. So no, nothing, no protection, no netting to fall into. One mistake and he's dead. He scaled it in three hours and 56 minutes. Free solo. As I watched it, because there's a documentary on it, as I watched the 20 minutes of the, of the ascent that they showed, um, like Lyndon, uh, you're, you're sweating you're, and you're in, you're in awe. In my mind, I thought, this has to be one of the greatest human achievements that a human being has ever accomplished. What you need to know is that Alex spent about 10 years dreaming, planning, working on carrying this out. They spent time on the face with ropes. He, he journaled every step, every move, every finger, finger placement, every toehold, mapped it out, and then did it. And as you watch it, you're, you're amazed. And he gets to the top, and there's this sense of exhilaration. But he gets to the top, and there's just a couple of people there. And it's like, yeah, that was amazing. And he calls his girlfriend. And he's going to be on the talk show circuit. And he's got fame. But some of you in this room have never heard of him until today. That's the prize for him. That's the joy for him, the exhilaration and and all that. And as I I consider that, I go, that is so small. That is so empty. And then I think of Jesus and the joy set before him and how God planned and worked for, for centuries For the time when he would come and take on human flesh and that he would walk obediently towards the cross and embrace it. Why? For the joy set before him. What was that joy? We read in Psalm chapter 16 where David says, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. And surely that was part of it, that that Jesus would bring glory to God and he'd be in the Father's presence again with great joy. But Jesus had that before. He came from that place. He came to rescue. 
See, the joy for Jesus is that through going through the cross and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father, he would open the gates wide for whoever will believe in him to be able to be with him in God's presence, in his glory for eternity. This is the joy. You are the joy for Jesus. You are the joy. You are the joy. You are the joy. I am the joy for the joy of a restored, right relationship with God, for the people of God and the restoration of God's cosmos, the world, so that heaven and earth can be united in a, in a new place, in a new time. Jesus embraced the cross, rose from the dead, so that we could spend eternity with him. Jesus is with us in our struggle so we can be with him in his glory. Let me say that again. Jesus is with us in our struggle so we can be with him in his glory. Now, in the writer to, to the Hebrews, as he thinks about this and he's writing to them, you need to know that these people were followers of Jesus, but they were going through a hard time at this point. They had committed to Christ. They'd left their former ways. Many of them were followers within in, uh, Judaism but had embraced Jesus as the one who was promised in the Old Testament, as the fulfillment of that, Messiah, Lord, King, Ruler. But in their day, in their culture, as it is in many places in the world today, by the fact that they, they gave their allegiance to Jesus and they professed Jesus, it immediately put them in harm's way. Loss of li livelihood. Some of them, it says in Hebrews, lost their property. Would you like to lose your home? because you profess faith in Jesus. This is their real circumstances. And so for some of them, this is getting hard. And some of them are thinking of abandoning the path that they are on and following Jesus. And he says to them, don't do it, guys. Therefore, he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in chapter 11, he's recounted to them person after person who's put their faith and trust in God and how God is faithful to them. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer to the Hebrews can't imagine knowing about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and it not transforming how you live and not causing you to, to profess him and to live with great endurance. And he likens it to a marathon race. Now, I've never been a runner I think the most I've ever run is just shy under 10 kilometers. That's, that's it for me. But I've been around runners. And I asked my girls if I could share the story so I have their permission. But two of them ran in a half marathon a while ago. And um, so they're, they're running and we would meet them at the end of the race. We timed about when they would be there or should be there. And uh, so we're like a few hundred yards from the finish line. We're there, we're watching this whole subculture of humanity, the running culture. Well, that's quite something if you're not part of it. But people running by, um, running to the finish line, and that's finally at some point I see the two coming. And I thought, I'm going to run the last leg with them. So I go out to them, about 300 yards to go. And uh, I get there, and of course, I'm all pumped, I'm all excited. I thought they'd be excited to see me. <laughs> One of them, now my girls are all, like, they're all cheery-deary. They're very bubbly and, you know, usually extremely happy. I have to say, I've never seen this in my life, but one of them was, like, grumpy. 
grumpy in a way I've never seen. And so, you know, I'm, I'm saying hello, it's not really coming back, and I'm cheery, but it's, it's not reflecting the way I had expected. Um, it's coming back quite negative, actually, and um, so that's with one of them. The other one is bouncing around like a gazelle with a smile from ear to ear. They've just, they're finishing a half marathon. What it, what it illustrated to me is that when we, when we run, when we're in a race, sometimes we hit a wall, and this is what happened to one of them. They hit a wall, and it's so hard. Sometimes we have runners high. Can't believe what's going on, how fun this is, how amazing this is. Oh, I just want to do this for eternity. And we saw both experiences right in front of us. The writer to the Hebrews is, is saying, like, right now, you're, you've hit a wall. You're in a hard place. Not that it will always be like that, but right now you're in a hard place, and here's what you need to know. You need to run. You need to set aside every sin, the thing that got us into the problem to begin with. Set it aside. Don't let anything encumber you from following Jesus. And in your hard times, in your struggles, here's what you need to do. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Imagine every time when you're going through a struggle, a difficulty, you're being tempted, your first recourse is to look to Jesus. And when you look at him and you see the race, you see the path that he walked for you into glory so that you could be with him in glory, your heart is inspired. And when you begin to think that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and when he did that, he shed forth, he poured out his Holy Spirit to help you, that he is the author of your faith and finisher of your faith, that he's not going to abandon you. He went to all that trouble to go to the cross, rise from the dead. Do you think he's going to abandon you in your hard part of your race right now? No, you can walk the path. You can do it if you look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Speaking of races, I have another friend of mine, um, crazy guy in Australia. He's like a man's man. And he decides he's going to run a 100-kilometer race. So I've never done 10. He's going to do 100. He's close to 50. And uh, it's not on flat ground terrain. It's an Australian uh, trail, trail running. So it's like, you know, hills and, and not, not smooth uh, pavement paths. It's difficult terrain. And you run it in teams. So they run it in, in teams of four people. And you, you're not counted to have finished the race until your team crosses the finish line. Now, every illustration breaks down at some point. You're allowed, you've you finished when three of the four make it, okay? So one of them can die, whatever. No, one of them, you know, one of them can crash and, and your team can go, you know what? See you later. And, uh, but the idea is that you, you, you run as a team. And I think we need to realize that like Jesus wants you and you and you and you and you. He wants all of us to work together as a team on that path. Although our individual paths are different, we're working together. We're working together along that path of glory that God has called us to, to be with him forever. But we also are with him now. So in the church... As we're talking to one another and someone's going through a difficulty, let's do more than just pat them on the back and say, you can do it. It's in you. Let's pat each other on the back and lift our chins and say, look to Jesus. He can do it. He's actually done it for you. 
Look to him, the author and perfecter, the finisher of your faith. Let's encourage one another to look to Jesus. So the church has had this tradition where on this day especially, when we think about the fact that Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead, people will say, he is risen. And others will respond. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for for not abandoning us. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of all that we could hope or dream for. I thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross. I thank you that death could not hold him. I thank you that he was victorious over sin, Satan, death. I thank you that our victory is found in him. I thank you that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I thank you that all authority has been given in heaven on earth to Jesus. And we here today, Lord, we just want to say yes to you. To put ourselves under your authority and say yes to Jesus. And Lord, we ask and believe that you will equip and empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk the path that you've called us to, to bring you glory in the here and now and to be with you forever in your glory, Lord. That's the joy we want to live for. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.